We had a season setting process that was for determining how many cows, how many bulls, what access would be, et cetera, et cetera, which was based upon who could complain the loudest and make the most noise at commission hearings. And it all seemed to be dysfunctional. That process was pretty much replaced by, okay, Devil's Kitchen, how are we going to manage Region 4 hunting? There's enough trust built here, and this is a diverse enough group that uh, this is significant. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast. This episode is part of the Life in the Land Project, which is a series of films and podcasts produced by Stories for Action, which hears from folks that interact with the complexities of Montana's landscapes, speaking to the value of locally-led and collaborative work, and the holistic approaches needed for healthy communities and the ecosystems that they're a part of. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. Elk are a strong, majestic ungulate on the landscape, Their presence is critical to the ecosystem, and their meat provides healthy food for families. Elk populations can also create some very complex dynamics, some that can get tense. In this episode, we're focusing on the intersection of elk populations, ranchers and landowners, hunters, and the wildlife biologists and agencies who are involved in guiding management of wildlife herds. But this episode is not just for those directly involved in this concept, whether as a rancher, a landowner, hunter, or a wildlife advocate, which it definitely provides great insight for. But as our mission with the Life and Land Project is to show the value in working with others with varying priorities and perspectives, and how to foster healthy relationships with one another and with the land, these are messages that can apply for everything from a neighborhood spat to larger global issues that humanity is facing collectively. Or for those who may have gotten jaded with society for being so polarized and need some renewed faith that when we work together, we can move mountains, as a guest today says. When it comes to wildlife, an important concept to remember is that here in Montana, there is a public trust concept, that wildlife management is to take place for the benefit of the whole, the ecosystem, and the public. This is a little different than some states where some may argue that wildlife has become almost in the realm of private property. Currently in Montana, there are proposed management changes and even a lawsuit in play that causes a lot of chatter and fear that Montana is inching away from the public trust management concept. But today's conversation, I think, will show what is possible when a big picture goal is agreed upon and folks respectfully work together towards that goal, building trust and deeper connections along the way. In general, in Montana and across the West, some of the prickly intersections around elk look like this. As elk move down into the valleys for sheltered wintering grounds, they're often on private ranches, which fill many of the valley bottoms here. Of course, they also come through other times of year, but when they do come through, they feed on grasses, forage, and sometimes hay fields, all of which ranchers depend on to feed their cattle and they can also do costly damage to fences as they move through. Hunters speak up for greater public access to the landscape, but with private lands often checkerboarding elk habitat, that's where things can get prickly between hunters and ranchers and other landowners, as well as elk advocates who don't want to see cattle grazing on public lands, saying it depletes from grass for elk to feed on. Then you have agency, in this case, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, or FWP, which looks out for the health of the wildlife and imposes management or hunting regulations. And while this is a massive generalization, folks here know that there's a historic reality of tension between these groups. Of course, the dynamics are also victim to stereotypes, and there's plenty of ranchers and hunters who have great relationships and work together on access, and ranchers who appreciate elk on the landscape, and agency folks who are trying their hardest to please all voices, including the wildlife. But that's to give some context so that you have an appreciation of the successful collaboration of the group that call themselves the Devil's Kitchen Management Team, which is named after a nearby rock formation called the Devil's Kitchen, as their group mimics the complexities of spirals and difficult terrain. The Devil's Kitchen Management Team, which is a working group, no one staffed or paid, is focused on the landscape of the Beartooth Wildlife Management Area, about an hour north of Helena in central Montana. 
Mid-century, before it was a WMA, the area was an operating cattle ranch, and the Milton family, who owned the ranch, sold the land in 1970 to be managed as winter range for elk, mule deer, and bighorn sheep herds in the area. Next to that property are 30,000 acres of Forest Service lands that extend into private lands. So, like in many areas in the West, you have a landscape that's a migration corridor for elk and other wildlife that's broken up by various ownerships. Public lands with federal and state agency ownership and private ranch lands. But of course, the movement needs of wildlife don't care about invisible jurisdictional boundaries or even the visible fence lines. And on top of that, the human priorities are varied. So by the late 80s, with a quickly growing elk herd in the area of the Beartooth management area and increasing impacts to neighboring landowners and varying priorities for all involved, they all could see the writing on the wall of tensions that were building and where those tensions could lead. So those involved realized their approach needed to mimic the cohesiveness of the elements of the ecosystem that they were part of. The group of folks that initially came together was made up of local ranchers, sportsmen, FWP, and some other stakeholders. And together, they developed a new management plan that worked for all involved. And we'll learn more about those details later in the episode. But today, 33 years later, the group is still intact and has actually become a model for functional collaboratives on the landscape. The group still meets regularly, three times a year, to discuss ongoing elk herd management, but the focus is spread to the bigger picture. At their meetings now, they bring in experts on different species or management practices. They encourage new stakeholders to attend, and they're always looking for better ways to improve the health of the ecosystem here in ways that work for everyone. But as the guests today say, the most important part of those meetings is the lunch, where members rotate preparing lunch for everyone, and folks really have the time to build those relationships with one another, moving past just talking about elk and keeping up with one another's lives, updates on kids and grandkids, swapping stories of making it through a tough storm. That, to them, is just as important, if not more so, than the nuts and bolts decision-making. Today we're speaking with a group of gentlemen who were either founding members of the group or have been involved for multiple decades. Bill Long, based in Helena, worked at Montana Land Reliance for about 30 years. Montana Land Reliance was involved with the Devil's Kitchen since its formation in 1989, largely serving as a facilitating entity. Chase Herbert is a rancher in the area who has also participated since the beginning. Corey Lecker is the Montana FWP Region 4 Wildlife Manager. Corey's been a wildlife biologist in this area since 2002 and involved in the Devil's Kitchen group since 2003. And finally, Dave Cole, a lifelong hunter who was a member of the Prickly Pear Sportsman's Organization. Decades ago, Dave was invited to attend a meeting on elk management, which then turned into 25 years of meetings for Dave through his involvement with Devil's Kitchen. Rancher Chase Hibbard begins by telling us about the formation of the Devil's Kitchen management team back in 1989. Three of us uh, took, a, took a stroll on the Beartooth Wildlife Management Area in 1989, which is just after this big fire raged through, well, actually it was just about the time, it was, might have been before the big fire raged through the Beartooth Wildlife Management Area and burned about 30,000 acres of a 35,000 acre property. And there was myself as a rancher, there was a guy named Bill Milton, whose family owned the Beartooth and ultimately um, transferred it to the Montana Department of FWP. And Bill was off ranching in Roundup, Montana. And it was a guy named Tom Butts, who was an early uh, landowner sportsman person at the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And we were kicking, kicking dirt around on the game range and had a great discussion about how, you know, here was this big public resource and we had elk that were um, a concern and we had a season setting process that was for determining how many cows, how many bulls, what access would be, et cetera, et cetera, which was based upon who could complain the loudest and make the most noise at commission hearings. And it all seemed to be dysfunctional. Um, why couldn't we melt these things together and try to coordinate we had all this grassland at the game range that was becoming senescent that we could help out with cattle, improve elk range. Um, we were very tired of 
going to commission hearings and being the one that complained the most and the longest to make change. And what about public access? I mean, we had this, this big public resource and we had a private resource next door and we saw a great opportunity for, for changing the way that elk were, were managed and the, the way the whole region was managed. So we began to get together and we got every single interest group to the table. We got the Forest Service, we got the BLM, we got wilderness advocates, we got ranchers, sportsmen, of course, and we started to meet. And we met, I think, once a month initially for, for a very long time, and they were, they were all day meetings and started out spending a lot of time with the landscape description and what everybody wanted from the area. And pretty soon we were, you know, we were starting to break down the barriers between us and, and find commonalities. And the one commonality that everybody in the room could agree on is they wanted to see more bull elk. This universal focus on bull elk includes the biological interest and significance for healthy elk populations as well as interest from hunters and the state's guiding industry, as well as the public and landowners' interest in viewing bull elk on the landscape. So we started to build a plan around how are we going to create more bull elk? And then how are we going to protect the outfitting industry? And how are we going to to deal with the expanding cow population that that had been occurring? And so that's where our collaborative approach began. Um, And I think one of the keys to its success all along was that we never voted, not once. It was all in or no deal. It was consensus. So if anything makes you pay attention and get off your high horse of advocacy and listen to what the other person is saying, um, we pulled it off. Um, it worked very well. Facilitation from Bill and others in his Montana Land Reliance group were key to that happening. So we, we, I think it was a fairly unique a unique beginning. And I mean, here we are still in business, still managing cooperatively. We've established a lot of credibility and uh, just thought I'd, I'd give that little bit of history because I think it may frame, may frame what we're, where we're headed. And here's sportsman Dave Cole. One thing that I would add to that is the exercises that Bill took us through where we identified the things that were important to us. We found out we had far more in common than we had separating us. And I think that was kind of the glue that kept us together and kept us moving forward is the differences among us were not that important compared to those overall goals. And here's Bill Long, Devil's Kitchen facilitator. And part of the reality early on, Chase, correct me if I'm wrong, was that you guys, for example, were really trying to get some elk that were beyond the size of spikes. They were very immature bulls that none of them lasted beyond two years of age. And the, and the reality was that everyone, particularly the larger ranches, trying to do that on their own just couldn't get that done because the hole was bigger than the sum of the pieces. Here's Corey Lecker of Montana FWP speaking to another concern the group wanted to address. At the time, cow elk were really somewhat protected by the season type. I mean, you had to draw a special permit to hunt a cow elk, and that herd kept expanding upward um, because folks kind of want to, if you have a, a license or a permit that allows you to take either one, most folks at that time were just taking a bull elk versus a cow elk. The focus of the harvest was always leaning on the bulls instead of the cows. At the same time, the cow herd kept expanding and growing. What the Devil's Kitchen management team collectively came up with was a plan that they took to the Fish and Wildlife Commission. The management proposal would limit the bull harvest to allow for bulls to grow to a larger size, as well as allowing some to actually die of old age. Then to increase the antlerless harvest to reduce the overall elk herd, and to increase the amount of public hunting on ranches, and to have FWP help manage the hunting. It was not an easy sell at first, and the commission initially denied the proposal, but the group stuck with it, and eventually, by proving their buy-in from various perspectives, the plan was passed in 1994. Since then, sure enough, larger, older bull numbers have increased, and elk damage complaints from landowners almost don't exist anymore. Here's Chase Hibbard, area rancher, speaking to the concerns and previous management practices from his perspective. 
Well, I think it was probably more, and this is from my standpoint anyway, that we as a, as landowners had to complain at commission hearings and be heard among a long list of people with demands about any say in what the elk management policies were going to be on our on our our own private properties and in our region as a whole. And so that was one of the big benefits of pulling this group of several interest groups together and defining commonalities, which became much stronger than all these little battles, turf battles that were occurring about what the season type ought to be, how many cows there ought to be, or how many bulls there ought to be, or whether there's public access or not. All of a sudden, it just we pulled it out of that realm into a great, to a much, much larger realm where everybody, I mean, surprisingly, after months, months of meeting, the one thing that emerged as the commonality was everybody in the room wanted to see bull elk die of old age. Everybody in the room. And yep. so that kind of set the goal. And then everything else was secondary to that. And then, you know, the outfitters said, well, geez, how are we going to fit in this thing? You know, the ranches were doing a little bit of limited outfitting and there were some other outfitters active in the area. And well, yeah, you guys are part of this landscape. So, you know, well, okay, let's give you one week, two weeks out of the five-week season where it's possible to outfit. And so we we accommodated them. And then um, little did we know at the time that, that the success of what we'd started was going to end up growing an elk herd of a thousand or so. <laughs> How many, Corey? Uh, yeah, closer to 4,500 now. 4,500? <laughs> and, and so we've got, we've got a new set of problems now, which is a result of too darn much success. But, you know, we got the, the outfitters got something. We got something as landowners. Um, this is also when block management was nascent. Um, actually, you know, I, I think what we did it actually had some influence on the block management program. And so block management, so the public was getting access. You know, we did have a seat at the table, determining our own destiny. And, and with all, all this too, we, the FWP commission began to see the value of livestock grazing the game range to improve the quality of the grasses and hold elk there longer. And so that was another cooperative thing that grew out of it, which was absolutely taboo when we first started this discussion. Dave Cole was able to dig up meeting minutes from over 30 years ago and shared the established goals that were written in those initial meetings. I saw the, the four points that we had identified as a group as our key goals. One was to achieve a diverse egg structure. So we just didn't have baby elk, you know, being the sires for the herd. We'd like to see a few elk die of old age controlling elk numbers, and another one was alleviating the burden of the hunting season on landowners. Yeah. Um, some way to the headaches of having to be up at the crack of dawn mm -hmm. to greet hunters in the morning, and that was an important role for the, the block management to help landowners. Mm -hmm. And then the other part, the last point, was to increase public access to private lands, which I think the permit system did. As you said earlier, it wasn't all kumbaya. Um, the issue of the grazing um, being permitted on the Beartooth was something was a tough sell um, to carry back to sportsman's group. That was that was just absolutely something that was contrary to what they thought the the wildlife management area was intended for. But those of us that had been over that ground um, with some of the landowners, we could see uh, the potential benefits, particularly after, after the fire burned most of the wildlife management area, that there was a potential for a win-win. And I, I think that even helped the bond of the group even more so. And David, I would add that we, then we added, after we kind of put some, put some wheels to the ground, we added uh, a fifth goal, and that was um, was outfitting. And specifically, when we put a season structure together, Laura, to, to deal with all this, and it, it took us a couple, three years to get it done, to get it done within our organization, and then to finally 
get it approved by the Fish and Game Commission. So, so, had, so outfitting was, is, is, is a key component as well because we wanted to get as many stakeholders at the table engaged in the process. So, so when we actually rolled it out, we were going to have broad-based support um, moving forward. That's great. And, you know, Corey, I'm curious, you know, if you can share other approaches to this complex issue of elk management and private landowners um, that you've seen attempted in other regions or in other places in the state, and maybe it did have success as well. But um, if it didn't, what Devil's Kitchen was doing differently that made it succeed where other attempts did not? Sure. Um, I can just speak to the some of the ones I've been to. Um, actually, some of these guys helped as well. We went to Winnet, Montana. Uh, Winnet group started out, same kind of thing tied to elk, and they've expanded. Um, instead of just focusing on one thing and being stuck in the rut, they've expanded and called themselves now the Winnet Aces Working Group. And they tackle all sorts of things in the community, community development. It might be NRCS, FSA, anything in between. So they've really grown out of the box of just elk. Quick note here, you can learn more about the holistic community and landscape work of the local group Winnet Aces in the first season of the Life in the Land Project, both in the film episode on Central Montana Plains and in the podcast episode with rancher Laura Nolan tried to do one in the high woods, uh, had a lot of rancher participation in the beginning, and then it just kind of fades away. You know, a lot of, if, if folks, it seems like when folks come, they, they bring their personal agenda. If you're not getting that right away, it's easy just to fade off and not think about the long-term goal and be committed to it. I like what the person next to you has to say, but you should sit and listen. And then what are the goals, the big picture goals of the group? And if you're not willing to sit through that, if it takes one year to 10 years, then you can see those folks fade out. Yesterday, I was at the Sun River Working Group meeting. It's another example of a group that was created by some of the folks that come to this Devil's Kitchen Working Group. And it's been tough getting landowner participation at that group. Um, the you know We'll get five to 10 folks that show up at the meeting, and it's the same folks that show up. And another thing that I think has changed is um, the land ownerships have changed to where, you know, the, the sportsman's groups, there were some big sportsman's groups in Montana. Um, and there's, there still is, you know, Helena hunters and anglers. And, but now it seems like everybody has a sportsman's group, backcountry hunters and anglers, trout unlimited. There's, there's tons of them. You can be part of any of them. When back in the, say the seventies to the nineties, early nineties, there was mainly just, a few core big sportsman's groups, and now everybody wants their own thing for each species. And the other thing I noticed um, is the age of the group. Um, no offense to you guys, but the, <laughs> the average participant, you know, they're getting up there in age from 50, 60, 70, 80 year old, and it's very tough to get the younger generation yeah, that's a from age 12 to 50 to show up at these meetings. Time for the meeting is important. I'm in the community. If folks are calving, you're not going to get ranchers there. Summertime, they're busy. Fall, they're busy. Wintertime, they don't want to drive. Evening meetings uh, versus daytime meetings. So I think each group has to have some trial and error to make it fit for their area. Here's rancher Chase Hibbard. I think that the Devil's Kitchen model, if I can be so presumptuous to, to call it that, has been tried, had been several attempts to duplicate it and very few of them have succeeded. And in my opinion, the reason for that is, is that nobody takes enough time to do the landscape description and to, to take all the time to get to know one another before they wanna get into the issues and you know set up a, a procedure like win-win or no deal, consensus or no deal. Um, and that just, that takes forever and it takes a lot of patience and because of the great leadership that we had early on, those tenets were very strictly adhered to. And I think that's probably the reason that we've succeeded and none of these others have, is that everybody gets too impatient and they want their, yep. their way. But it's been quite interesting over the years. And we've actually seen some personalities 
I think, really grow up and mature among the participants. And I think a lot of it was because of what was going on in Devil's Kitchen. And the other thing that was really fun to watch is that people would come in and go to come to a meeting or two, and then they'd come in and they'd have a big advocacy position. And they'd expect some action. Everybody just kind of look around the room, and then you go on to the next item. <laughs> you realize. They realized that maybe this wasn't as important to everybody else, and they better, you know, come back again sometime and and kind of play by the rules, and then maybe they'd maybe they'd accomplish something. And again, Corey Lecker. And I think one of the most important things that I've seen successful groups, and it's not just tied to this or or my position. I don't I don't care what what group you go to, whether you're going to stock growers or a walleyes unlimited meeting is there has to be a good facilitator who can manage the meeting. And sometimes that facilitator knows nothing about the group, but they know how to run a meeting and handle personalities to get them all on the same page. Bill has done a great job at that. Another thing that I've noticed too in my position is that the trustworthiness, if you want to call it that, you could sit around with 20 ranchers in a room with just ranchers and there's a different sense of trust versus when you add a state or federal agency or multiple state and federal agencies on top of that to where some states, some areas of the state, whether it's a fishing game agency or DNRC or BOM, some folks just don't have that trust with those agencies due to whatever reason. And it takes time to build that trust. Bill Long additionally stressed the importance of getting to a point where everyone in the room respectfully listens to one another. Something that as many of us know is easier said than done, but when it really happens, that's what can get you, quote, over the hump, Bill says. I asked the group to give us some nuts and bolts of what the Devil's Kitchen management team actually looks like, as far as how it operates. For listeners who are wondering if something like this is even possible to get started in their own area, no matter what the collective issue is. Bill Long starts it off here. We typically meet in uh, March, and we meet in July, and we meet in December. And the March, December meetings are at the Methodist Church in Cascade. Um, typically, the summer meeting is at the Beartooth Game Range. And some of our meeting times coincide with hunting season, setting quotas, and when data is collected vis-a-vis relative to elk and other, and other critters. We typically have 30 to 45 attendees. Uh, our meetings are usually last from nine to two. People take turns preparing lunch. We pretty regularly get, we get land from Seabin, which is always a treat, but people will bring critters. We will have critters that people have shot for lunch. <laughs> um, and, and the lunches last, last a little bit, 45 minutes to an hour. And that's, that might be the most critical piece in that whole thing, Laura's that you know people bring pictures and talk about grandkids and all and all sorts of stuff. As Chase mentioned earlier, people so we're always having people coming in talking to us about a whole host of things. And that can be from grizzly bears to weeds, as it can be from timber harvesting, you know, to to wolves or and every and everything in between there. It's a very knowledgeable group and it's seek that knowledge on. And then if we have something specific come up, like a fire on the bear tooth, um, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle that. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the, the parameters. So guys, what do you want to add? What would you add to that? Uh, I would also add important uh, thing is like you mentioned, season setting. And then if legislature's in town, uh, there's always some things that come up. Um, might be small things like fisheries or fisheries projects. We've done a lot of a lot of West Slope cutthroat restoration projects in the neighborhoods up there. Uh, but legislature, uh, we invite the, the lieutenant governor came to the summer meeting. Um, our summer meeting, we tried to do some sort of a tour, a grazing tour, or timber management, and try to get folks out in the landscape to see what we're doing. So just to add that. That's great. And it shows just how much you guys have expanded from kind of those core root issues that brought you together originally. And I'm curious, you know, to go back to the early days of the management team, I'm, I'm curious just what some of those initial friction points were. Like Dave, you mentioned that um, as far as the grazing on the WMA was one of them. Were there any other key points that were kind of those friction points, you know, including like agencies needs versus landowners? Here's sportsman Dave Cole. 
you know, I, I, I think from my perspective, one of the first things we had to do was break down the level of distrust between like the sportsmen, perhaps the cynicism they had in dealing with Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks versus landowners versus outfitters. My experience had been that when I was president of our sportsmen's group, like like Chase referenced, we'd, we'd go up and do combat at the legislature before the Fish, Wildlife, and, and Parks uh, Commission. And But it was more like we'd go up and say our set piece and everybody go different directions. But good Lord, you couldn't consider talking to each other. And, and that's what we started to do through Devil's Kitchen. And that's where we started to see some movement. And a lot of that, I think, all of us had to work hard with our constituent groups to bring them along. For example, and you know, sportsmen, sure, they wanted to see um, more bull elk too, but to get there, they had to sacrifice. They had to go to a permit system so they weren't over harvesting the bull elk so that some could grow old. And all of that just it it just took an inch by inch pushing process but an educational process to bring folks along uh, that were part of the different groups that were there. Here's rancher Chase Hibbard. Yeah, the department had very deeply, and the department and its followers, um, i.e. sportsmen primarily, had a very, very strong opposition to even thinking about grazing um, on the game range facility that was set aside for an elk winter range. And so we we started a little bit of grazing and a little bit of grazing grew to a little more grazing and grew into even more grazing. I think that somewhere along the way, the, the benefits of grazing became very, very apparent. And um, we're eating old senescent feed with cattle that hasn't been, been grazed for years. And what happens is it comes back much more lush in the spring and it draws elk and there gets to be ultimately there's more quantity because of uh, proper grazing treatment and and it's a it's all done on a rest rotation system and so um, everything that's done on the game range is within the rest rotation framework and we weren't required to do so but you know we are also managing uh, by the same standards on our ranch rest, rest rotation grazing I and mean, there's been a kind of give and take that way but the evolution has been pretty amazing. You know, we've, we've taken you know field trips on on our bear tooth. Uh, July meeting at the bear tooth, we've taken field trips up up and seen some of the grazing and some of these sportsmen in the past were just just rabid about it. We just oh man, this is really great. You need to do more of this. So that's been a pretty interesting transformation along the way. And back to Corey with FWP. Yeah, it's taken taken a lot of education, not just from our local groups, but when we we have a quite the process to propose a grazing system or a grazing plan on our public land it has to go through an environmental assessment. It has to go through public comment, and it has to go to our Fish and Wildlife Commission to be approved. So it's quite the process, and there was some some major groups, user groups, not just in Montana, but watershed type groups that were anti cattle on public lands. Um, so they would weigh in um, to our commission. And then it depends on who the commissioners are appointed by the governor, if they are pro or against that type of thing. So we basically had to do a lot of monitoring, a lot of picture taking um, with the first system to show that it's working. And then really just keep inviting these groups that wanted to comment to come show up. We will show you what's going on, why we want to do what we do, and we've actually doubled, if not tripled, that system in size now to, I think it's 45,000 acres now um, between the public and the private. And yeah, we could use cattle other places if we could get them there. Just logistics is tough. But yeah, I think in a showcase uh, for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, it is one of the biggest systems in the state. It's, it's really showcased transition from very few elk using the winter range to now we winter 2,500 to 3,000. In 1970 to 90, it would be about 500 at the most. So we've really showcased um, the benefits of using livestock. Uh, we do intensive monitoring and education to the public. 
and actually other other ranchers in in the state. And here's sportsman Dave Cole. I think another area of support that's that's indirect is the the general educational effort that's going on. One I think that stands out is Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and its Bugle magazine, which continues to have a number of, of very thoughtful and scientific arguments addressing some of these issues like grazing management, also addressing questions like, is this elk herd healthy if we don't see any larger bulls? Is this the way it's supposed to be in nature? Uh, and the other is uh, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks and their own magazine, which I think also helps to support this too. And both of those journals describe what's working in different areas in Montana and then elsewhere in the Rocky Mountain West. And I think it's, it's bringing the, the whole understanding among sportsmen of a more educated level of how complex uh, a process this is. But I think they're both very helpful. It shows the proof is in the pudding. And, but it takes that data collection and those photos and you know all the, the evidence to back it. But that's, that's great to see that the education is spreading. And I'm curious, with even attending these meetings and continuing to be a part of Devil's Kitchen Management Team, like you said, it, it takes time, right? And that's that's time that a bunch everyone is busy all seasons. It's hard to pull away. Um, and I'm sure all of you feel a duty to continue to participate. But if you can also share with me some of those energizing moments that you get from it that just make you want to attend and want to gather with these folks and want to move this work forward, you know, also to get out to new folks to kind of inspire them. Just what are those energizing moments that you get from either just that community that you've now created or seeing success in the work, um, the success on the landscape? What are some of those moments that you get out of it? Well, I can, I can share a specific one, but what we ended up with, given those five goals that we talked about earlier, was a hunting season that was atypical for any season that had ever existed in Montana, because it took, it took a little components, it took a little trust that landowners are going to let people get these permits go hunt. It just uh, does a lot of fitting, it does a little bit of everything. And we, when we first took that to the Fish and Game Commission, they took us mm. down. We, we made a couple runs at it and we couldn't get it through. And my biggest fear was that certainly after the first time we got t- turned down and people were, people were emphatic in that saying, we're, we're going to keep going on this. We're going to get this done because it's important to me. That was my role as the facility. That was a benchmark decision to no, this we want we want to keep doing this because the group easily could have stopped it. It was a clear message from the universe that we don't like what you're doing, but we persevered beyond that. And here's rancher Chase Hibbard. I think one of the more gratifying moments for me was um, when all of a sudden just it just happened. It became apparent that Region 4 was coming to our group to craft their proposal to take forward to the commission for the season approval. This was that system that I mentioned earlier that was a squeaky wheel system where you'd attend public hearings and talk as as loud as you could and as long as you could and as articulately as you could for long enough and enough years and finally you might get a little bit of a change. Well, that process was pretty much replaced by, okay, Devil's Kitchen, how are we gonna manage region four hunting? And I mean, to me, that was an aha, and that was, oh my God, this has had an impact. I mean, this is there's enough trust built here, and this is a diverse enough group that uh, this is this is significant. And to to date, Chase, we still hear it um, at the legislature or at commission meetings where the words "Devil's Kitchen Group" is the example, and why don't you have one of these in your community? We still hear it often. How about for um, you, Corey or Dave, you know, energizing moments that you've had that it can be general too, of just like, yeah, like this is why we do this. (laughs) I think for me, not to just not to showcase the group publicly, but just more of a community and internal within the group is a few years ago, uh, probably closer to 10 now, but 
the Milton family who put this all together and then sold it to Fishwalk and Parks, they started coming for a family reunion and we let them stay at the buildings. Uh, they bring their grandkids now, but we set up one of the meetings um, where it overlapped the same day as the Devil's Kitchen Working Group meeting in July. So the whole Milton family is there who were neighbors to Chase's family and we're all part of developing this group, um, especially Bill Milton. And so we, it, it worked out great and it was really neat to see 40 to 50 people all there and to get the Miltons back involved in it, started it all with, with the WMA. That was neat to see for me. Uh, how about you, Dave? Well, um, I, I haven't continued to be um, active in the Devil's Kitchen group. Uh, my wife and I are both in our 70s and we're physically just not able to, to hunt and then enjoy the hunting experience anymore. And then we had an interesting uh, situation with my sportsman's group. We had an effective uh, an NRA coup and um, folks that were more interested in gun rights um, then the environment took over the club, and, um, and, and that's been the case. There's this new organization called Hell and Hunters and, and Anglers that um, is a, a strong advocate for environmental management and so forth. But um, it's not automatic. I was kind of disappointed to see most of the, the mainline uh, environmental or, or hunting groups are now in a court fight with uh, private property owners over um, fish, wildlife, and parks hunting regulations. I don't know that much about the issue. Maybe Corey could share that with us. Yeah, there's there is a lawsuit that's out there right now with property owners and fish, wildlife, and parks, and oh, there's other things that come up over time. But it that just shows the diverse opinions across the state and the West about elk and wildlife use of private lands and management by the agencies, pretty contentious at times. Have you guys had in, you know, recent years, folks that attend the meetings, you know, that, that might have more of that hostility brought into the room that you can tell just instantly doesn't vibe with what you guys have created in your space? You know, do you like set ground rules at the beginning of your meeting kind of thing? Or maybe you haven't had that come up of, of where you've had to address that? Out of the gate, a new person that shows up, um, you know, Bill, maybe we'll mention being respectful to the group and the group will definitely just sit and listen. Those folks who their agenda doesn't jive uh, or they don't get what they want soon enough, they don't stick around very long. Yep. Yep. That's really, that's really been the case. Yeah. It's sort of weeded itself out, Laura. Yeah. We have had, we have had landowners show up that have brought a problem to the group that asked for solutions that really didn't want to stay around, but just, just to show up and see different ideas of what we could do to help them. And Chase, have you had, you know, with neighbors, you know, that might disagree with certain methods, um, conversations you've had on the side about? Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. Unfortunately, the dynamics in our ranching community have changed with um, some ownership changes. And you get folks that come in with, from a different place with a different uh, view of the world. And, and um, you know, this is a, a challenge that we have now is to try to get the, the newcomers into the community to understand how long it's taken us and what a journey it's been to get it to the point where they can actually take advantage of it and be part of it. And we may not always agree with the way they're, they're conducting themselves, but generally in the past history is any indication of a lot of these folks in time will finally come around to, a, you know, to more of a positive, um, you know, cooperative way of looking at stuff. And I, I don't want to sound like I'm being horribly critical here. It's, it's, it maybe isn't going as quite as smoothly as, as we like in terms of cooperating in certain areas, but I think we're, we're, work, we're working at trying to get that, that to change. Chase, didn't you do a video on that with Fishwalk and Parks about 25 years ago? Same same concept. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Still still relevant. <laughs> still did. relevant today. Yeah. Lock on the gate. It was all about you know landers, landers, landowners coming in. First thing they do is put a lock on the gate, and you know ultimately a lot of them the locks disappear, but some don't. I asked the group to offer any final messages, either encouragement to get younger folks involved 
for people in their area, or for folks around the West who may be struggling with divisive issues on the landscape in their own region. As often, no matter the issue, a lot of the same approaches can apply of finding ways to push past conflict to get good work done. Chase Hibbard starts here. My advice, and I've repeated it several times, but it, it doesn't seem to get traction for lots of reasons, and that is that you know I, I know of a lot of clones that have tried to start up and I've talked to a few of them over the years, and I know Bill has, and probably Corey has, and maybe and maybe Dave too, but I think in every case, they don't go through that long, arduous process of building trust before they get into the differences, and it never, it always blows up. They just don't last. So I think the, the, the whole key is that I think this model is duplicable. I think it is it's a it's a great model, but you've got to have a lot of patience. You've got to spend a lot of time around the table at the beginning. You've got to have lunches together. You've got to have cocktails together. You've got to get to know each other as people. You've got to develop some commonalities. And if you can get that base built and get that trust established, then Katie bar the door. There's just no end to it. Um, I mean, you can you can move mountains. But in my experience and observation, no one's had that patience. You know, they'll start to meet and then they'll get polarized and there's not enough, not enough Bill Longs and Bill Miltons and good facilitators around that are able to kind of help out with keeping them on track and doing the adequate homework. Bill Long echoed Chase's words and Bill's connection was having issues. So I'll paraphrase what he added. But he said at a Devil's Kitchen meeting that had been held just the day before this conversation took place, they really had to grapple with some big issues with the growing elk herd and other concepts that could become prickly for some. And there was the potential for things to get really tense. But Bill said that due to the established trust and relationships in that room, they instead were able to use their various inputs to come up with some really creative and innovative solutions. And that he walked away from that meeting, full of difficult work, with a great deal of optimism. And here now is Corey with FWP. You know, you always want to tackle the issue right now. And always want to, you know, everybody brings what the problem is. But yesterday's example was we needed to address the elk plan and and write the elk plan for the future, for the next 10 to 15 years. So we're thinking about where do you want to be in the next 10 to 15 years? So not only are you tackling what's going on locally at that time, but you got to think and be visionary about where you want to be in 10 years. But yesterday was a pretty good showcase of that. Hmm, that's really neat to hear. On that, Corey, any, any other final messages you want to put out there? It's been great for me to be part of it. Moving here from working in Nebraska and Wyoming to, I'd never been to Montana when I moved here. Um, these guys didn't know me from Joe my first meeting, but um, they were welcoming. I think if, if people show up with um, factual information and you're truthful to the group, everybody can speak about their problems. And, and if you're sincere about it, and if you don't know, it's okay not to know. Um, that's where we bring in the experts about a particular pro- uh, topic, whether it's grizzly bears or moose, or we bring in anybody, grazing managers. So if you don't know, it's okay to say that and admit that and bring in people who can help the group move along. I can remember when we brought in uh, one of our mule deer biologists, he laid all the antlers on the table down at the bear tooth because people were saying they didn't, they didn't, we didn't have any big mule deer. And everybody at the group says, we have way bigger mule deer than all those antlers on the table. So what's the problem? We didn't even have a problem. We were trying to create a problem. Humans are interesting species. Yes. <laughs> A big thank you to Bill Long, Chase Hibbard, Corey Lecker, and Dave Cole for speaking with us. I think the perspectives that the group shared with us today are something we can all carry with us, not just as it applies to our realm, whether we be hunters or ranchers or wildlife advocates, but in whatever pressures our personal or professional lives encounter of how to approach a fellow person or group or issue with creativity to shake up our typical reactions to conflict, and to truly approach one another and the land with an air of respect. I think we may be surprised at the enriching experiences 
and positive impact we may find ourselves involved in when we do. You can find links to articles and videos related to Devil's Kitchen Management Team in this episode's show notes. If you would like to find more information on Devil's Kitchen or get involved and join their next meeting, reach out to Montana Land Reliance. Their site is mtlandreliance.org. Or you can call or email the Montana FWP Region 4 office. This episode focused on land that is the homelands of the Blackfeet, Apsalaga, Crow, Métis, and many other indigenous peoples who interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. You can check out all the films and podcasts from the Life in the Land Project at lifeintheland.org. The content is made to be shared and can be used as a free tool for organizations and community groups to kick off workshops, community conversations, or to incorporate in a curriculum to look at how holistic and locally guided initiatives can apply in your region or community. This episode is supported by One Montana, a nonprofit working to sustain a vibrant Montana by connecting rural and urban communities. One Montana's Master Hunter program helps build community and connects folks from both urban and rural areas across the state by restoring the cooperation between hunters and private landowners, helping landowners in the state of Montana with their wildlife management goals, and creating ambassadors and mentors for the sport of hunting. The Master Hunter program is a model for all states addressing wildlife management issues on private lands. Find out more at mtmasterhunter.com. Please be sure to share these podcast episodes with others, and we appreciate it if you're able to subscribe and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action, and find out more about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. This second season of Life in the Land is possible through the generous support of the Crocus Foundation, the Greater Montana Foundation, which encourages communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And additional support from The Nature Conservancy, Sarah Rubick, Rodney Fry, and Beth Madden. And in-kind support from The Common Ground Project. You can help to support this work as well. Any amount is greatly appreciated, and your contribution is tax-deductible. Find out more at lifeintheland.org. Thank you so much for listening and furthering the conversations that create human connection around a thriving planet for all.